Enterprise Intelligence is a weekly video series that talks to industry experts, global thought leaders, and seasoned knowledge workers about how they're tackling their information challenges, embracing new technologies, and moving the needle on performance. Hosted by Shiny Docs founder and CEO, Jason Cassidy. I'm joined today by Louis S. Eisen, JD, CIP. He has practiced law, been a technology consultant, a policy writer in Government of Canada. His approach to drafting policy has been adopted by groups and organizations across the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. He's an author of the international bestseller, How to Write Rules That People Want to Follow, a guide to writing respectful policies and directives. Welcome, Lewis. It's really nice to see you again. Thanks, Jason. So why is it not obvious to write ru rules that people want to follow? How did we miss that? I have to tell you, it's a combination of a lot of things that have come together. And I'm going to start when we're young. We're just brought up to hear rules coming from parents and teachers. And we are told subliminally that rules need to sound bossy. It's just that's the way it comes across. If you're going to tell somebody what to do, they better understand that you're in charge and they need to listen. That's part of the rule gig. And that's the kind of sort of attitude a lot of us bring forward into business, even though we're not dealing with children, we're dealing with adults. So that's one piece. The second piece is that we have a very still heavy heritage of the commanding module, the commanding control management approach, which for a long time was considered the epitome of people management. And yet we've seen in the office in the last 20 years, we've moved to a much more hierarchical, much more inclusive, diverse group. So we're not looking at commanding and controlling the way we were. And I think finally, it's the, we're starting to realize, especially in this market where it's very hard to hire people. I'm sure you hear that a lot. You now have to be a better company. And part of being a better company means getting your ducks in order getting your values in order, getting your culture, and speaking to people in a way that's respectful. I return my shopping cart because mm -hmm. it's the right thing to do. Stay within a reasonable amount of the speed limit because it's the right thing to do within the realms of what I consider to be safe. It has nothing to do with the law or that people are going to be make bad faces at me. It has to do with the fact that we can make our own calculations. That is a perffect example of one you just raised with the speeding limit. Okay, I have to tell you, because when I ask people who are rule makers, what percent compliance do you really think you want? They'll say, oh, 90, 95%, 100%. And then I'll say, what percent compliance do you think you have with the speeding laws in your area? Most people are going to give you a figure much lower than that. But even though compliance with that law might be lower, it's not an indication that we don't believe in the need to regulate speed. And we don't believe in safety. So using actual compliance as an indicator of whether or not you've bought into what the business is doing and the way it treats people is quite misleading. All of a sudden, you've forgotten the outcome as you start putting the requirements in place, it you've forgotten that you want a business outcome. Yeah, that's absolutely and true. And you're just driving to a particular rule. Yeah. And there's one other thing I think that you wonder why haven't we got it yet, and that is that writing always lags behind speech. We know that. Writing, formal writing, changes much slower than speech changes. 20 years ago, people would talk to their employees, their subordinates, in a very a gruff, demanding, or a dictatorial way, and they wrote that way. 
Today, nobody talks that way to their employees, but they're still writing that way. It's just that the written word hasn't caught up. And especially when it comes to policies and regulating behavior, people are afraid that somehow if they let go of the stick, they're not going to get cooperation. There's a wonderful parallel between the information professional or the records manager and any other policy that you might have in place, which is a reminder that if you want the business outcome, you have to speak the business language. I think you need two things. One is you need to speak the business language because they're not going to come over to your language. That's for sure. The second is I think you need to identify the common value because you're both working for the benefit of the organization. And it's not the case that, say, if you're in the records management area, that you have all these rules because you're earning a profit from them. It's not, it's, they're not lining your pockets to have people follow the rules. And yet we often don't share that commonality of vision or value of where, what the business is about, where we're going. And a really good example, if I can give you one, for instance, is the need to be trusted by the public. Okay, so people who do, say, deliver services or are salespeople or bank, whatever they do, who are frontline workers, they have a need to be trusted by the public. In information management, we have a need to make sure the organization is trusted by the public, and that's why we have our information rules. It's funny, and I, I think because it is not a direct payback. Like, obviously, there's certain things that we can do as information professionals, they're going to have a direct result on our people experience, our customer experience, and that'll be a positive that might drive more revenue. That's great if we can find those things and execute them. But if you haven't put the goodwill associated with your reputation on the balance sheet to see what kind of liability you might have associated with that on the other side of the balance sheet, then it would be hard to do these calculations to decide what the value of good governance, good information management might be. You must come across that all the time, I would think, where somebody, you go to an organization and they valued the computer assets at $2 billion and the value of the information is zero. Of course, an intangible asset. But you have all sorts of other intellectual property, for example, that you've mm -hmm. assigned a value to, like your patent portfolio or other things. You definitely have a data liability and you have a data asset on either side of that balance sheet. And what is it worth if that goodwill associated with that goes away? You have the big data breach. There's got to be some a goodwill payback on being a little bit more prepared for these reasonable requests of your information. That, I do think that's true, and the, the insurance argument is very powerful, though, because it is true that you're paying a certain amount for insurance, which might seem expensive and not worth it until you get into a problem, and then you, you're glad you've spent the money to prevent it. I just think a, a good question to ask the organization when, when it comes to the information assets is, if you lost the trust of the public because of a breach, how much would it cost you to get it back? What's that going to take? And those numbers are huge. For sure. And it is calculable. That's the fun and interesting thing. What would you do from a marketing perspective? What would you have to do from a performance perspective and then put that in there? It still is a calculable component because the insurance thing, I used to think it was a really good metaphor. I've changed my mind on that more recently is that it's people want to figure out What's the minimum amount of insurance I can get away with? It's not that I feel good that I have the insurance because I'm covered. It is, how do I get away with having the least amount of insurance? It now is more of the optimal way of performing that. And I think the same goes for these this data that we're talking about. 
that really isn't a way to motivate people in an organization. There is a very powerful motivator that's especially come out in the last two or three years, and that is the search for truth. And one of the main objectives of the information management professional is to grease the wheels in that search for truth, to do everything they can to make sure we arrive there and the people at the organization get accurate, timely, up-to-date information that doesn't conflict. And that should make them incredibly relevant, you would think. And that's a lever that you can pull as an information management professional. It's definitely hard to get the attention of your CFO, your CEO, your board, if you're talking about the power of the insurance that you provide. Mm -hmm. Quite frankly, they're probably paid not to care about that. So just make sure I'm covered, keep me out of jail, keep me from looking too bad, fine, check. But they really don't want to invest there. But if you're now all of a sudden you're speaking a language that they can understand. I think a lot of times the information professional is, I did IM for a number of years and I saw this, they saw themselves as playing the police, the compliance police, and it wasn't a role they particularly wanted. But instead of thinking that you're there because you're promoting the practicality like preservation or disposition or whatever the particular process is, you're there to ensure the preservation of truth. You're there to ensure the accountability of the people and they have the evidence behind them to be accountable. You're there to ensure the integrity of the organization. If compliance is your concern, compliance is simply a strategy to reach integrity. Integrity says, I did my job and I didn't cheat. I did it by the book. I followed the rules. And you're there to help people do it and follow the rules and not cheat and maintain their integrity. But if you don't look at it like that, if you look at it like, well, I'm just there because I have rules and I'm here to enforce them. Well, for sure. If there's certain political arenas or maybe in entertainment, you can get away with kind of talking out of your butt a little bit because you're not really the one doing the work. And that's sure we can think of a lot of examples of that. But when you're doing real life industry, you need to have that confidence. You need to be able to act with a certain level of certainty and this gives you that isn't it? that's exactly what you want to feel to be able to sleep at night no i think you're right again just a little historical analogy for years we always thought of records as almost a pink collar profession for a long time but dora down in the records room who never saw the light of day knew where every single file was right like she was the most reliable person in the organization she could help you there and then as we started automating and moving up into areas that we can't control as much, we lose that ability. It makes us feel a little less powerful. But there's no reason we shouldn't be the modern day equivalent of that Dora and be able to, especially in an organization that you work with where you're talking about people federating different types of, they gotta know where is everything? Where's everything stored? Where can you find it? What's reliable? What's not reliable? That's of enormous value to the organization. It, I like that. And it ties back to the original thesis that we're talking about here is that it's not just writing rules that people follow. I think your, your, your book and your message is not just a very good directive for people how to write policies, but it's a metaphor for how to conduct your processes, how to conduct your business, yeah. and that to make it approachable and make it something that people can actually execute. Yeah, that's fair. When I say writing rules that people will follow, it's because I don't think we really want obedience, some people do, but what we really want is cooperation and teamwork. We want them to work with us. So the, with the rules we're setting, we want everybody to follow so that we all do better. 
part of the thing that I guess works against that is when we bring in those very old paradigms of language. You must, you shall. And unfortunately, I have to tell you that a, a number of the standards organizations like the ISO and whatnot still stick with that very antiquated vocabulary. I don't know, from my perspective, Jason, nothing says I live in the 1900s like the word shall. Okay, it just doesn't say I changed my writing style to match the times. And unfortunately, a lot of that still gets perpetuated there. The reality is, though, that you can make things just as strict, just as optional, and just as recommended without using those parent-child words like must and should, may. You, know, you just have to learn how to reword. Well, in and culturally... And it, I'll even say a, a, a different example that we found as we're a growing company. When we were the first 18 people in the organization, we only had one female in the organization. We didn't know why. We put out our job descriptions, and they said, you must have this and this. And then we had a wonderful advisor, a human resources advisor, come in and say, can I just look at your job descriptions? And she told us, hey, women aren't going to apply for your jobs. And I'm like, why not? Because it says, here's 10 things that you must have to apply. And she goes, men, if they have got one out of 10, they'll just throw it in there. Ah, whatever. I, I might get this. Whereas women, if they don't have nine out of 10, they'll go, no, that's not for me. And these are these, I'll call it cultural. It's just a thing that we wouldn't have had a clue about. We thought it was just implied as you must have 10. But if you do six, seven or eight, that's fine too. So the language really works against you when nobody's inside your mind what you're really looking for. Candidates are eligible if they have, and then listing those things, is an invitation for people to come in if they like what they see. The wording, you must have this, is a bouncer standing at the door sending people away. Don't bother coming in unless you, wait, let me check your credential. Nope, not you, not you. That's what you must have says. It's sending people away, whereas that whole approach, I think she's picking up on it the same way. You want to say to somebody, here's what makes you eligible and as an invitation. Yeah, it's so true. And it's, we followed those rules, Lewis. It's, I feel like it's the same things that you're writing about. And next thing, we're 40% female at the organization in growing that. And it's, it's not even that purposeful. Like, obviously, the world is generally 50-50, mm -hmm. so your company should probably be generally 50-50. And we're trending towards that now because of, it's funny, we call it inclusive language, but it's not even inclusive language. It's just language that should be used. But it's just so rare that we have to give it some type of special name. I'll tell you, part of, I, I believe, the notion of inclusive language carries the subtext that management is subject to the same rules as everybody else. So when the language says things like employees must do this, employees must not do that, it sounds like, but not us. Just the employees want that. Employees must not park in the fire lane. Nobody must park in the fire lane. Nobody's allowed in the fire lane. Yet you've decided to segregate and specifically pull out, call out, employees as a culprit in this policy, the way you've worded it. And that's not particularly inclusive. If, if you're trying to, one of the areas I have to tell you people really have trouble is what happens when somebody needs to make decisions because it's technical or it's, there's some factors they have to consider. They're really afraid about how you word things there in a way that empowers people. And it's actually very simple. You simply say that position has the discretion to make this decision. 
And the factors that should be considered in exercising this decision are the following. So again, that's being more inclusive because you're opening the power to more people by expressly saying we are giving this person the discretion. We want them to be controlled by certain principles, maybe, but they have the ability as well. The flattening of the hierarchy, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And that's it's certainly personal advice that I received like when we were growing our company. You go from a company of four people, where as the CEO, you're making every decision. It's easy, everything that's going on. But then when you get to 20 and 40 and 60 and 80, all of a sudden you can't be making, you can't even be making 10% of decisions. But yeah. did you build like the guardrails or the scaffolding by which people know where they have the freedom to operate? And by the time you reach that size of company, you haven't quite done that yet. So you find yourself in this gray area of indecision and you have to find yourself drafting these, what you want to be guardrails. But your initial draft often comes out as policies, if you know right. what I mean. What you want to be doing is setting the tone. And you've given me a really good example because often small companies will come to me and say, can you tell me how am I supposed to set up my policies? How many people are you? We're 12. The same person who's running the company is also approving the policies. So just write down what you want. Don't worry about the policies of the directives and the standards. You're setting a tone. You're setting a modus operandi. Just write down what it is that you want to happen and, and how you want people to interact. That's enough. But as the organization grows and grows and we start having decision makers who are separated from the policy group, the HR people now has to form a committee to produce a policy that goes up this way, they start to get scared. They start to get a sort of a cover my butt approach because I don't want this thing to happen to this person over here and maybe that that culture that person wanted to express that sort of frame of conduct didn't quite make it down to HR. I have to tell you, my biggest opponents are, when I do this, is lawyers, interestingly okay. enough. And I, I'm a lawyer myself, as you said. When I was in law school, I was taught that policies are just little contracts. Like you have an employment contract, and then everything after that, or even if you have a purchase contract, every, all your little policies, they're just little contracts, and they should all sound the same. But that's not true. Contracts are adversarial documents. They're supposed to set up your rights and obligations against my rights and obligations. And frankly, I don't really care whether or not you feel warm, fuzzy feelings when you read my contract. Like it doesn't have that role. It's not the same with policies aren't supposed to be adversarial. Policies are supposed to be cooperative. Policies are supposed to describe how we want to work together. So it is a mind shift for lawyers. I understand that. Because they, we are brought up to think, no, everything has to be done defensive. We have to do this as a CYA and make sure we don't get into problems. But that's not what the purpose of a policy is. And I think when you talked about starting a small organization and motivating people with a vision and a mission, that's more along the lines of what the policy is. It's a continuation. It's an explanation of that vision and mission. I think that's genius, Lewis. It, the idea that... Yeah, just the point of view that you take it from. It's not the what can go wrong. It's like a lawyer is always thinking. It is, yeah, what do you want to go, how do you feel it should go yeah. right? And writing it from that perspective. It reminds me of when, like I was setting up my first business and as we're setting up our personal finances and affairs, my, my lawyer said, don't do it this one specific thing, 
because when you and your wife get divorced, then she will have this power that, and I was thinking, when? I'm like, no, this is the way I want it to be set up because it's in our best interest as a family. And it was just, it was such an interesting thing. And I think that's along the same lines. They are just so programmed to look at what can go wrong, probably will, and this is how you defend yourself, that they can't think of how it's going to drive you to So how do we use that then to our advantage is the question, okay? Because we need to take our policies to the legal department. We absolutely do. But we need to ask the right question. So a lot of people send their policies to lawyers and say, what do you think? That's not the right question, okay? The question is, you send it to the lawyers and you say, what risks will this expose us to? That's what the question is. Tell us what the risks are and do you have any suggestions for how we might mitigate the damage or avoid those risks? And then you take that information back and you make a risk assessment as being on the business side. So it is the lawyer's job to tell you about all those things. I think we we run into problems and I know there are going to be lawyers who are upset with me here, but when the lawyers have too much power and end up making those policy decisions, that they're usurping the role of management because weighing the risks is a management function. The lawyer's function is to outline the risks, just uncover them, and they may not be obvious, make recommendations for mitigation. What the people at the top, they're paid the big bucks to decide whether it's more important to make sure that you're following this piece of legislation over here or you're preventing a listeria outbreak. That's what they're paid for. They're making sure that everybody is healthy with COVID or are we going to be worried about whether we're breaching this municipal bylaw over here? Now, I'm not suggesting that the municipal bylaw is not important, but that's their role to weigh all these different risks and understand the consequences. And that's how we, information professionals, and I'm sure that's what you, when you try and work with your people, you try and help them understand how to articulate those risks to the people up higher, because that's the language the people up top want to hear. Yeah, and and, and certainly lawyers have taken a bit of maybe a well-deserved beating over being pessimists here, but I'll uh, ask you more generically, like this way of thinking just gets you to ask better questions, more outcome-focused questions, which is something that we all need to be doing at all times. And I'll give an example, like you don't have to talk about this example, but maybe like Mm -hmm. when by the time an organization gets to us, sometimes they'll say, oh, we got to move all our data into SharePoint. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Why do you have to do that? Because my CIO told me that. But what really came down was that we're on aging infrastructure and we need to modernize and we're having a hard time finding the information. Those are the questions. And then somebody at some point went, I heard that this is how you do that. I went to a trade show or whatever, and then they gave a directive to do this type of thing. Whereas if you're a little bit more liberal and open with your questions, then so that every operator from top to bottom understands what the original question were, then you can ask better questions of your vendors and your Mm -hmm. peers. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think what that actually emphasizes is that there is a hierarchy that you need to respect in policy. And that is, it's got to reach back to strategy, business goal at the top and business values and culture. So every time, like somebody has a policy and they read, we're supposed to do this. And I was like, why? What is that furthering here? Is that su- supporting this strategy? What value does that support? You're telling me I'm not allowed to look at that document. How does that support collaboration, which is one of our values? 
Okay, so if the policy is going to work. If people are going to follow these rules, they need to be able to trace it back through the, you're talking about an approach, general strategy. Start there, start above actually. Start with your vision and what are your values? How are you going to work? And how do you want your organization to run? And then what are your overall strategies? And once you've made those decisions, then you can write some rules underneath that to support them. All right, we'll start with the rules. Oh, that's so smart. And it's so sad that we we don't discover that. And it's good once once we read your book, we start to learn these <laughs> things. But And I think of some of our more successful recent projects that we have, rather than having Slack and email discussions and decision-making over calls and meetings with the customer, our more successful projects recently, we actually have a suite of live documents. It's almost like a wiki or a, it's sometimes it's just collaborative documents that show that start with the big why they talk about the wins every time you get a win it ascends up in there you talk about the data that you've identified and then mm -hmm. underneath it you talk about what you're going to do and there's this checklist of what you're going to do and you can't get to the what until you've kind of waded through the why and the information that you gathered and the wins that you've had and it just helps build context for everybody and no i feel like it's again it ties back to that same thing is that you want people mm -hmm. to understand why they're making a good decision yeah. rather than just telling them this is how to make a good decision yeah that's simon cynic which was intended for marketers is just as applicable in this situation the start with why approach absolutely yeah and part of that too and you gave us in our marketing group some coaching as well is start with your values rather than what you're going to do with people like really say like it's because I, I can tell you a hundred what's what we can do with our customers mm -hmm. but why should they pick us is at a different level it's they should be aligned with our values as well I think they should and what I was what I promote mostly when I try and get organizations to do is when you aim for values aim really for some core values that people will stand up for Okay, a lukewarm value to me is something like courage. That's very nice that you have courage as a value. But if your management says we have courage and they don't act that way, nobody's going to, they might complain, but they're not going to leave. But if your management says we're about treating people decently and they don't treat people decently, people will leave. People will not put up with that because the people want to work there because that's what management said. We're about treating people decently. We're about acting with integrity. We're about improving the safety of the public. That why, that's why people are working there. So the more that you tie what you're doing to that why if, if, about truth, we're about giving people truthful information and being honest and open with them. So the more you can tie it to that, the better chance you'll have to get people involved. And if you so I, I see some very limp values, curiosity or dedication. That's nice. Okay, but if you say you revoke curiosity and then you don't actually act curious, I don't think people are going to leave. They, they might grumble, but they're not going to leave. It just, that isn't what motivates us. So those core values as people are also those values that are the reason we stick and work with that corporation. Those are the reasons we want the corporation to succeed because it's about accountability or honesty or decency or safety. And that's why you want, and that's why we'll follow their rules and support their culture because we're trying to support that value. Yeah. And in, in early in the conversation, we touched on what's important to the, like, 
CFO, CEO, and boards, the most powerful people in the organization, is these are the values that they have to take very seriously. It's their integrity, that what they say is actually true. The safety, it's no longer sufferable to have people injured as normal course of in, in business. And these are things that you take seriously or you're no longer in business anymore. And I haven't mentioned anything about how we get you the right information at the right time to do this. There's a hundred, well, there's nine different ways that we do that, but we haven't even talked about it already. If we say those are our core values, you kind of get a sense of what we're about and what we're aligned with. And if we don't do that, then people will be out. That's right. And you want management to be able to say, we don't compromise on that. We don't compromise on safety. Right? We're not going to put profits before safety. We're not going to compromise on accuracy. You want? We, are you prepared to have them compromise on curiosity? Probably, but they don't compromise on accuracy. So the more you can tap into those core values and make them part of your strategies and then fall into your policies, the better compliance you'll get. And that's the main concern. People aren't listening to our policies. In what I like about this conversation, obviously, we want your people to buy your book in triplicate and learn from you. But it's we're discovering it's not just for a policy writer. If like the target audience, obviously, if you're a policy writer, you should, you should probably have it. That might be required reading. But if you're a leader of any kind, or if you're somebody who has individual contribution management, but you do have leadership of some type of facility within your organization, whether it be data management or physical assets or whatever, the way that you interact with people should be strongly influenced by the way you express yourself and, ex- right. and express your requirements. And that becomes the, de- the manifestation of your corporate culture. That's part of your branding, right? So that you are known as an organization that is well organized, or- your information is organized, that you're, you get answers quickly and easily. That's part of your branding. That's how people know you. Yeah, it's, I love that. And it's a constant reminder, and it's a theme that if somebody watched across a lot of our in, in enterprise intelligence webcasts, that they'll hear, here's not just things that you need to do. Like nobody, we all know we need to do 100 push-ups a day and 100 sit-ups and eat right and all these kind of things. That is, those are tactics. That isn't a strategy. It's not expressing my intent. Whereas what you're describing is more about expressing an intent. We do not compromise safety is expressing the intent. And then you can get measured against that. Whereas it's not just if I miss my chin-ups one day, that's okay. It's, and you can do that. But if I do something that is abjectly unsafe, on pur- purposefully or negligently, then clearly I've disrupted my values. I want to pick up just on that last point, because that's a perfect example for one of the things I tell people. We know we want to take the organization from here to here. That's where we want to move them. We know why we want to move them. And we know, because we're experts, that the best way to, to get from here to there is to go straight, turn, turn left. So we write a policy that says, you must go straight, turn, turn left, and turn left. And we don't understand why people don't buy into it or what they want. They've left out the why. They've left out that movement. They've left out that goal. And they've turned it into a series of tactics. They've taken the map movements and made that the policy. As opposed to our policy is that we will constantly move in this direction and constantly strive to improve constantly innovate. Those are policies that you can have that reflect the culture, not we turn right, left, 
turn right, turn left. That's those are tactics. Oh, for sure. Yeah, like it, it's a classic joke that everybody can tell now, now that nobody works there anymore. Is well, Blockbuster gave you cassettes, physical assets that you must take home and get back, and or a late fee happens, and they never changed that. And they didn't understand that they were in the entertainment business, and then they went away. Whereas companies who adapted to that, now there's some big companies out there that adapted. I really like that you came on this, Lewis, and I love that we see you quite a bit around the information professionals and that, because it's a natural marriage associated with this. Maybe you could tell me, not just at AIM and ARMA and MER and other conferences, maybe you could tell me where do people find you? Where do people find your book and what you can do for them? Yeah, so the book, which is How to Write Rules That People Want to Follow, you can get that at our Amazon or Barnes & Noble, or, or if you've got people listening from different parts of the world, you can get it at your local bookstore. I, uh, I'm actually probably best reach on LinkedIn or my website is lewiseisen.com. I, uh, I love to come and talk to organizations about how they can look at their rules differently. But usually, um, we're frustrated, people aren't listening, we think we should yell more. We think we need to be stricter and harder. And hey, are you prepared to hear that maybe you need a... It's not just having a carrot instead of a stick. Maybe we should be looking at this a little differently. Uh, and then I'm happy to come and talk to organizations about it. Yeah. People reach out. And... Well, it's, I have no choice but to agree. Like The points that you made are fantastic. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks a lot, Lewis. You're welcome. I love... Thank you, Jason. I have to tell you, I love the way you're able to describe what you do for organizations in these same terms. And I think that's one of the reasons we've been able to have such good discussions over the last few months, because you're doing the same thing about looking, how are you changing the culture of the organization by doing what you're doing? Well, well thanks so much, Lewis. And it's, I try not to do too much shameless promotion in this, but it is, I always take it back to the fact that we know someday people aren't going to be manually dragging and dropping a file and putting attribution and following a policy Someday mm -hmm. the machines are all going to be doing that for them. And we want to take the technology in that direction. We want the organizations to get that where possible today so that then they're ready to move once the artificial intelligence and other things are ready to go in that capacity. So it is values oriented far more than this is the widget that we have to sell. And I think perhaps that's why we get along so well. So thank you. I think so. Thank you. Great.